Hello, this is Why Are We Talking About Rabbits? And this is uh, a podcast put out by First Things Foundation, www.first-things.org. We do the restaurants and stuff, Supras, Gagi Marjo, send people into the field to work on small project development around the world in order to help those folks who have brilliant ideas to help themselves. Think Peace Corps, but with an ancient Christian backbone. We also make a lot of mistakes and say dumb things. Today I say some of those things, but thankfully David Patrick Harry is here to clean them up. Philosopher, guy working on his PhD where he's studying ancient Christian theology and the notion of transhumanism. Uh, really interesting thinker. He talks about to- we talk about toxic masculinity. We talk about the nature of education. We get into what it means to become sort of whole. We talk about, oh, the lidometer. We take that test, which is scientific, that tells you just how old world you might be. This is Watar. Thanks for tuning in to this talk with David Patrick Harry. So, David Patrick Harry, DPH, what do you want me to call you like... What do you go by like, if you're walking down the street and somebody, your friend says, hey, DPH, what do they say? Uh, most people that know me in real life call me Patrick. So my dad is also, he's David Samuel Harry. So he always went by Dave. I always went by Patrick. Um, and so in a way, those who call me David, I know it's like a professional relationship. Whereas those who call me Patrick, it's probably a personal relationship. That's cool. That's, I'm going to. Well, I feel like Patrick. Well, so call me Patrick. Patrick. I'm yeah, gonna call yeah. you Patrick. Although yeah. you know what, and it's what my Christian mean? name. My baptismal name's Patrick. Same Saint so Patrick of Ireland is my patron saint, right above above Saint John here. Oh yeah, above him is Saint Patrick of Ireland. Okay, so Patrick, uh, here's the thing: you're doing some. I think many people who are already listening to our channel probably already know who you are. So there's that. And then there's people who don't. And I like to introduce, you know, I was taught being a writer and also a teacher, like context is everything. So if you just mm-hmm. start jamming on something and your class is sitting there and they're, they don't have context, who am I, where am I, where are we going? You know, people don't like that. So right. tell us, how you know yourself in this, it's not really a new endeavor, but a somewhat new endeavor as a, as, as a person on the internet who has a pretty big following. Who are you to, to us at Watar? <laughs> so <laughs> I am, uh, well, 34. I just turned 34. I'm finishing a PhD at the Graduate Theological Union, uh, looking at uh, what I call technological deification and comparing transhumanist philosophy to the, the theology of Eastern Orthodoxy and the doctrine of theosis and showing how these are subtle inversions of each other and comparing uh, the, the concepts of deification. But I have a YouTube channel called Church of the Eternal Logos, which is not a church. I am not a priest. I am not clergy. It's just a play on, on really the idea of sort of Protestantism. Everybody has a church, and I'm just trying to get people. Good and play. I discuss topics, pop cultural topics, manosphere, uh, things that are happening. Uh, could be local globalist endeavors. It could be religious stuff. Recently just did a, an Orthodox deconstruction of the Gospel of Thomas. So 
I just take Logos theology of the Eastern Orthodox Church and then talk about contemporary issues for people to see maybe what an Orthodox perspective on things would be. Mm. And uh, before that, I had a YouTube channel that was pretty successful promoting psychedelics. And I would create graphics from people like Terrence McKenna and Robert Anton Wilson and Timothy Leary and Alan Watts. And eventually, during my PhD program, I was actually doing research on a book called The Psychedelic Gospels. I was promoting psychedelics. And this book um, demonstrates that there's evidence for these Amanita muscaria mushrooms, which are uh, sort of indicative of a lot of uh, inebriating cults and, and forms of shamanism, especially around Siberia, that there's all these frescoes in southern uh, Western Europe, so in like southern, southern France, northern Italy, southern Germany. And so they have all these frescoes of He's showing Christian pics depictions. Are looking at the video, they're cool pictures too, yeah. Yeah, um, and I got into that and sort of doing that research, I realized that all the evidence for this argument that the Christian Eucharist was actually a psychedelic mushroom or psychedelic ritual. Uh, it was all between the years 900 and the early 1300s. And I re learned about the Gnostic Cathars. This was tied to some of my master's research was in at the University of Illinois was in early Christianity, Gnosticism, Hermeticism, and psychedelic shamanism. And then my undergraduate was at the Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis, where I studied biology religious studies, and had an academic certificate in Mandarin Chinese, spent two summers in southern China. And I was really interested in, like, Eastern mysticism, mm -hmm. so Taoism, Buddhism, um, some of the Dharmic religions, so Hinduism, Jainism, Buddhism of India. But um, I did this research during my graduate stuff, uh, my Ph.D. program, and at the time, I was there to study people who were spiritual, not religious, of which I would identify myself as spiritual, not religious at that time. Mm -hmm. Very much interested in psychedelics, felt like this was the way in which, uh, you know, true mysticism could be accessed. And then I saw that all this stuff was uh, historically contextualized between a Gnostic heresy called the Cathars, um, who were basically uh, using inebriating substances for the Eucharist, uh, which was tied to these ancient mystery traditions and tied to ancient forms of Gnosticism. So then that got me interested in, there was a book by uh, R. Gordon Wasson, who's a famous author uh, promoting the idea of, of, of psychedelic mushrooms. He wrote an article in Life magazine in 1957 describing Maria Sabina, this uh, shamaness in Mexico, and she, her taking inebriating mushrooms and these little mushroom helpers would allow her to heal people, gain insight into stuff. Well, he wrote a book with his Russian wife, uh, Valentina Pavlovna, on uh, mushrooms, Russia, and history, highlighting mm -hmm. that when you look at the etymology and philology of Slavic languages, they are what he would consider mushroom uh, philic. They, they have tons and tons of words for mushrooms. Whereas in English, we have toadstool, fungus, and mushroom. We only have three words to describe the litany of that species. And so we call that a mushroom-phobic culture. But given the affinity of Slavic cultures and languages, it's very common for a, you know, a, a Slavic grandmother to take her granddaughter out into the woods and show her which mushrooms are edible, which mushrooms we mm -hmm. eat. These are for this stew. And I thought, oh, well, I wonder if I'll find all this mushroom frescoes work in Eastern Orthodoxy because they have all these icons.
And so I took a PhD course in Eastern Orthodox theology and history. And that's what really got me interested in orthodoxy, because I already had a background in academics and religion and philosophy, and then I learned the intricacies of the theology of orthodoxy. And um, it basically changed my life. Uh, I was a non-believer going into that course, and was a non-believer going out, but it weighed so heavy on me, and I kept thinking about it, and it felt so right that eventually... I gave my life to Christ on 11 11 18, so 2018, uh, October 11th, and just been on a journey ever since then of, okay. All of right, hold promoting on, no. orthodoxy. Hold on. This is, I want everyone listening right now. Again, you, I, I don't know how much you paid for this podcast, it was probably zero, but that's like in a million dollar podcast that you just, you feel free to donate. Uh, you can follow the links because you owe us. Because one of my favorite things is conversion stories to anything. I, like I like people who convert from Pepsi to Coke. Like why? Here's the thing: we just heard a conversion story. There was a guy trying to find out about mushrooms. Took a course about Eastern Orthodoxy. First of all, that's so badass that you were like, "I've got to find out more about these mushrooms." And then your whole life changed because of that. That's nuts. Yeah. And then that, that's so literally how it went. And, um, and so I didn't have a YouTube channel. I mean, I had my old YouTube channels promoting psychedelics, but then I, like my heart sort of converted and I, I was certainly, I would begin to identify as a Christian. I wasn't brought into the Orthodox church yet, but I knew a lot about Orthodoxy, read the church fathers because of this course. I was very familiar with the history and, um, at the same time, uh, I was finishing my coursework, and the arguably the most famous philosopher living is a gentleman named John Cyril. He is he was a tenured professor at UC Berkeley, and he'd been a tenured professor since like the early '60s. And while I was there, he got fired for quote unquote sexual harassment for asking a younger woman that worked at the university to go to dinner. Now he was in his 70s or 80s and she was like 20 years or 30 years younger than him so she was an adult but he asked her to go to dinner obviously berkeley is a very liberal climate this was branded as a form of sexual harassment in the workplace and they fired him and when that happened it really shook my drive for all of my 20s i saw myself as wanting to pursue a phd and be this professor and have my tweed mm. sports coats and my briefcase and tell the kids to come to my office hours um and it it made me realize that i putting all my eggs in the university basket is a waste of time because they can fire you based on anything that they decide wow. so I didn't know exactly what to do. I had this psychedelic YouTube channel, which I was living off of through the ad revenue. I'd make anywhere between two to $5,000 a month just off ads. And I hated making the content because I was my heart. I was moving out of the whole psychonaut, new age, spiritual, but not religious scene. And so I didn't know exactly what to do. I was breaking up with my, the girlfriend I had at the time, long, long-term girlfriend and my mother, got uh she was diagnosed with a rare form of muscular dystrophy so all these things were occurring at the same time wow. and so i actually went to an ayahuasca ceremony uh with now my orthodox godson who's also he's a, he's actually a doctor um and i was again was not brought into the orthodox church yet and i just was kind of lost and i have this prayer that i wrote down 
before that, before going into the ceremony, I do not advise anybody to go take ayahuasca or psychedelics. This is just where I was in my life. Mm -hmm. And I prayed that God, you know, I don't, I want to work. I want to have a career. I want to have a family. I just don't know what exactly to do with my life. It felt like everything had sort of come to a, a standstill and I didn't know which direction to go. And I did the ceremony, took all the ayahuasca that the shaman would give me and they're doing their chants. And I had this experience where, um, it was quite clear to me that it was time for me to grow up and that I was a consumer. And so that whole YouTube channel was me consuming the ideas of, again, McKenna mm. and Watts and Leary and Robert Anton Wilson, and then, and then repackaging it for other people to consume. And that Christ was a carpenter and that uh, what it was time for me was to become a man. And, and what that means is to be a builder, is to build something and not to consume. And the ayahuasca stopped working. And I already had this idea, and, and I created the Church of the Eternal Logos, but I didn't know exactly what to do with it. It wasn't a real thing, and it was just on my heart that um, it was time for me to build something. And after coming out of that experience, especially with the drug stuff, where it's the first time I've ever done, done psychedelics, and like they just stopped working. So after this revelation, you, you that can, it was time for me to grow remember up. That that was oh, a yeah. moment. It was a threshold. It was absolutely, it was a huge moment. Because I went to the shaman and tried to get more ayahuasca, took more ayahuasca, it just yeah. wouldn't work anymore. And it was like God was saying, this stage of your life is over with, and wow. it's time for you to move on. And that's when I went home, I decided that I was going to do this Church of the Eternal Logos thing full time. I had like 100 subscribers or something, and I was going to take my life savings, I was going to move back and live with my parents, and I was going to create this YouTube channel. And I've been doing that for four years. Okay, we did that with first things. I hit a I hit a wall where I said, "Wait a minute, I'm, I'm asking people for money, but I'm not giving any." It was very interesting. I think there's a physical, uh, there's a there's a there's a spiritual physics, and I just took my 401k and just went all in, and we had zero followers at that time, and here we are. Mm -hmm. So, what are your lessons from having jumped all the way in? You're not a tweed jacketed. No smart guy on a, a you know up in a up in an ivory tower, but I think you're a smart guy. Like, how would you rate what happened to you in terms of your courage? Has it been a good trip? Absolutely, it's been. Uh, and, and it's funny you say trip because all the psychedelic stuff is that uh, God's providence. I, I had thought of that. <laughs> yeah, God's providence post that experience. It has been a trip. Uh, it has been a journey. But it's one that isn't as, as I talk about, it's not ecstatic. It's not like you take the LSD or the mushrooms or the ayahuasca or the DMT and you get into this ecstatic state and there's colors and vibrant stuff and ideas and emotions. No, it was like a lot of work. It was deliberate. It was intentional. Mm -hmm. But then I can see God's providence work in my life, which then deepens my faith and deepens my faith in the journey and that I'm on the right path. And then doing prayer and, 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 you know, not engaging in all that stuff and changing my life and going to church and being part of a parish and then, and then growing as a person that it's absolutely been beneficial. And I can see the providence in it and I can look back, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, and I can see how it all begins to fit together. And now I'm engaged. We've talked about uh, we, when mm -hmm. we, we met in Montanica. So it's like, and that's all through my online stuff. She went on her own faith journey. She's from Germany. 
she converted to orthodoxy three years ago. She followed my stuff because of Church of the Eternal Logos and me putting out content and apologetics of orthodoxy. And now we're engaged, and, and now we're getting married, and it's it's all providence. It's And I see that myself, I feel like I've grown more as a person and the man that I ever wanted to become. And now I have my own platform. So God willing, be able to finish my PhD and, and turn my dissertation into a book and not be dependent on a university. And, and maybe a Orthodox institution or a seminary school would ask me to teach some courses. I'd love to do that. But uh, the idea was to do, be able to do what I want to, I love, which is researching and presenting information and educating. Mm-hmm. Um, but without the limiting force of an institution like the universities that are so corrupt and political. Will you, will you go down a little rabbit hole with me as a, sure. you're a philosopher, man, and, and you're well read. And so you just made me think of something. Uh, there's a participation that's necessary in the Orthodox Christian life, right? You have mm-hmm. to participate, but Providence you cited n- numerous times in that beautiful description of your life. I think some people, New World people, think providence is sort of happening to you. I, as an Orthodox, would say, no, you're participating with it. And then I hear, this is where I want to get you involved, because you know this stuff. But then there's this Protestant work ethic theological moment in, Mm -hmm. in time, which is, I feel like that's a different concept, the idea that God rewards you for hard work. I don't. I don't identify with that as, as as orthodox, but I do believe I have to participate in order to like I have to sweat. It's not ayahuasca where I just take a I take something and everything opens up. There is right. a participation in a work, but I don't associate what you're describing what I'm trying to describe as the mm-hmm. Protestant work ethic. Would could you speak to that or is it might yeah. throw you a curveball too early here. No, no, I can actually speak to that. Yeah, the Protestant work ethic is a concept that was developed by a sociologist in Germany during the 19th century named Max Weber. And he was highlighting that for Protestants, because of the lack of a sort of sacramental reality in their church, work and, their, and, and money and your career became a way in which you sort of earn your salvation mm-hmm. by demonstrating your work ethic. And I would say that certainly characterizes my parents, and there's a lot of good values within, I would say, American Protestants that, that are good workers, but it, it often leads to people over-idolizing their career and, and their job and money, and we can see that in the West, consumerism. Um, but I agree with you. One of the things I've talked about with many priests that come on my program is that orthodoxy is a participatory theology. It's not a propositional theology where you like read books or you come to a rational understanding. It's not a Gnostic spirituality where you rationally apprehend something. You participate. It's for everybody, whether you're smart, dumb, you know, whatever, whatever category mm-hmm. you, your existence is. Orthodoxy is for you because you can participate through your being, through your heart, through your the sincerity of who you are as a person, and that's what God cares about. Is participation so? For instance, I've got a Trello. It's an organizer. I have to sit uh-huh. down on my Trello, and I feel like I'm working, air quotes, when I do my linear Trello and I check off a box, and I feel like I'm participating with what I'm being called to do. 
but I never feel like the boxes I check actually create a lot of beauty <laughs> or something. <laughs> I feel like I got a lot done, but the the true lurch forward into what I would call spiritual success, it's not because I checked all my Trellos. It's very weird, but I still have yeah. to check them. Do I still have to do those things? I think I do, but I don't know that the payoff is what I think it is. Do you get what I'm right. saying about the mysticism yeah. of the payoff? Yeah, I think the the spiritual growth is the goal and not the goal, not the box that you check, even though the work that you put in to check the box and the discipline it takes makes us better people. You have to. Yeah. But it's not for that. You know what right. I mean? It It's confusing because, for instance, I want to get a contract that we're working on one right now in South Africa with a big energy company to try and work in South Africa and do our, do our nonprofit work. And we're trying to acquire the contract. It's, it's a private company and I've got to check boxes, but all the boxes, if you read them right now, they're awful. They're, they're not transformative. They're talking about like insurance and due diligence and it's, it's nightmarish or, or somewhat nightmarish. <laughs> yeah. And I always feel like I'm about to get trapped into something like this linear understanding of my success. And I never feel invited to that by the Orthodox theology. On the other hand, I still think I have to do those things. Right. Well, I would agree with you in, in regards to the way that I feel how this work ethic relates to my life and my Orthodox spirituality is I want to be and what I pray the Lord can use me as a tool and a conduit and right. tools are used to work. And so I can't be a tool for God and just sit and not do anything. Yeah, you yeah. can you can potentially grow spiritually or be a, a great person. But I tell young men when when you know I, I do some one on ones uh, and a lot of young Orthodox men have contacted me to talk about the state of their life or how to how to figure out what their purpose is. I want to always highlight that. that working on yourself, for example, being fit, uh, the goal is not to be shredded where you take your shirt off and everybody can compliment you. The goal is that you're the best version of yourself. So when your grandmother falls or, or you're there, you're you can be a tool for God when somebody is, you know, passes out and you're standing in line at a restaurant. You're the person because you've 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 done work where you can be, as Abbot Trifon says, an angel in disguise. And so I look at everything. When I read books, when I learn information, when I work out, when I pray, all of this is in a way work, but it's not the point isn't for the accoutrements those works comes with, but it's to be the person that God can use in the world. And, and I think that's a different perspective, but that's how I feel at least my Orthodox spirituality, my Orthodox faith shapes how I understand my work is that I, my salvation is not dependent on me doing it. That's right. But, That's right. But who I am as a person, I can help and I can be used by God more if I do it. And yeah. that's what my desire is. I want to, I want to be a tool for God. And to do that, I have to constantly work on myself so that I can be that person. And when these young men talk about, well, how do you find an Orthodox wife? How do you, well, you have to become the man that that woman's looking for. So God can providentially put you guys together. Right, because the idea that you can just be who you were, 
and now you've been baptized into the church and you're good to go. It's like, well, that's not how it works. And, and right. you want a woman who's, you know, working on herself and, and not being corrupted by the worldliness and everything it has to offer. Well, how do you expect an, a woman to work on herself? And then you haven't worked on yourself. Right. You know, so it's not about the, 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 the worldly accoutrements of these works, but it's about, for me, being a, a vessel that God can use. And the more tools you have, the more skills you have, the more God can use you. It just kind of makes sense. I, um, I don't want anybody to quote me on this, but I think it's the hagiography of St. Anthony, but I can't remember. But it's, it's, I think it's a general idea from the early monastics that they wanted to acquire an aroma. And I always think of it as, you know, in, in the mystical sense of death, I want God to be able to recognize me by my smell. I like smell here. <laughs> it's so not intellectual. Yeah. Smell is like, you know, it's foisted on you from some yeah, yeah. unknown place. And I feel like what you're describing is a type of work or a, a movement toward acquiring a, a smell, an aroma. And mm. that I'm not thinking like about that. myself as generous. I've become generous and I smell right. generous. <laughs> I don't know if that works, but I like that poetically as yeah. a concept. So uh, I agree with, with that. Do this with me then, because uh, our Substack just came out. I just wrote about toxic masculinity. You and me sometimes, but definitely folks in this undercurrent or this this corner of the world called sort of Orthodox Christian. I don't know what we call it. The, the interwebs. We tend to be lumped in and have been written about as toxic. Right. Which, again, is a smell of some sort. I don't think what you're saying is toxic. I, I don't think any of what you've done. But I, I, I think there are people that will think you're, you're a toxic male on some, on some level. I don't think so. I'm not saying that. What do you think about this toxic masculinity concept? Does it, mm. have, does, does it get into your world? I know you've spoken about it on your podcast from time to time. Yeah, I talk quite a bit about masculinity and when you talk when you mention toxic masculinity obviously the left and their pursuit through critical uh, theory is criticizing traditional masculinity as type of a patriarchal formation in society that suppresses other people mm. and there is this massive movement then to that men should be a bit more feminized and that would then produce a more egalitarian society and as an Orthodox Christian, uh, obviously we're not, and then they use a characteristic toxic masculinity as like being, you know, you just shoot guns, eat red meat, and, you know, uh, watch football and yell at people or something. Um, and so being a man, I don't think is that, but I don't think you can be an Orthodox man and not also be a provider and a protector and a leader, because that's what you're called to do. And so it's been interesting. There's been articles written about me by... Um, you know, certain certain peoples uh, within the Orthodox world that would promote a more liberal and progressive worldview that have called me toxic. And the latest article was that I was a transphobe, homophobe, fatphobe, and an ableist. And that uh, this is why my... Those are the words they were using? 
Yeah. So those words remind me of the way they like grow food now in a petri dish. They feel grown. They feel like manufactured in a petri dish. Very I, much. I love, so. Let's throw them around. You're such a fat phobe. Yeah, and and they call me a fat phobe because I tell young men that they should become physically fit. I don't promote the idea you have to become an, an Olympia bodybuilder. No, the idea is that you just need to be conscious that you as a man have a physical role in the world. And that can be, and so if you want to get married, who the heck's going to protect your wife and children if something were to happen? Listen, you have to have a physical presence. The, the idea that being fit is something like um, like new or something is insanity. <laughs> like, yeah. It's absolutely called human existence. Everybody knows this. Uh, I get it. St. Nectarios talked about Physical exercise is, is inherent in, to the human soul. It's, it's, it's necessary. Right. Yeah, it's crazy. But, but there yeah, is toxic masculinity in the sense of like the Andrew Tate phenomenon where um, certainly he says things I would agree with in regards to a deliberate attempt by elite people uh, that have a globalist ide ideology that are doing certain things in society to move that agenda forward. Um, that the, the media is fake and that they're constantly lying to us. But, you know, he's a guy that made uh, millions of dollars with his brother by running a cam service where he would have multiple girlfriends and convince them to take their clothes off and talk with guys online for money, of which he was then the one that the guys were actually talking to on the keyboard. And so he then That's promotes so this idea. Yeah, exactly. I think it's just called being a pimp, isn't it? Yeah, Basically. exactly. It is. In yeah. the idea that that is tied to your masculinity, how many girlfriends you have, how many women you sleep with, how much money you have, in a way that is toxic masculinity because it's Great. a pursuit of these worldly things where orthodoxy, I think, gives like virtuous masculinity where maybe you can, you know, you become a man where if you become successful in business or whatnot, these are after effects of you growing as a man, but Orthodoxy is pretty explicit that you have responsibilities. You need to take care of yourself. You need to first focus on God, build the relationship with Christ and the Holy Trinity, and then begin to develop yourself in multiple aspects and dimensions of your being. And that's what every man needs to do. And we look at these young men, and unfortunately, they don't have a lot of good role models. So I've talked with so many young Orthodox guys that have converted, and they never had a real father present. They don't really know of a like a masculine role model. My dad was a army helicopter pilot, so I grew up with a very traditionally stoic masculine father that, you know, didn't want me to cry, always wanted me to compete in sports, play sports, you know, be the best I can be. And so that really colored and shaped a lot of my perspective. And then that fits within the struggle of the Orthodox life for me, because lifting weights or being good at sports, everything's a you know, everything that's a struggle is more enticing to me uh there's there's a real growth there and i talk to these young guys they don't have anybody that real talk to them honestly and orthodoxy is the last form of masculine christianity it's it's the last patriarchy and it's the true patriarchy is the patriarchy that it goes all the way back to abraham that all the way goes back to adam it's the patriarchy that that is blessed by god um, but it's a patriarchy and it's a masculinity that's not about how many girlfriends you have. No, you find one woman and you commit to that woman and you take yeah. care of that woman and you do you utilize your skills to to 
provide more than you consume. You protect, you learn, you lead. You're a spiritual leader in orthodoxy. Your own salvation as a married man is tied to how you lead your children and wife spiritually. And so there's, I think that's the masculinity that the world needs. And that's the meaning crisis that so many people want to talk about. You know, these young men, they play video games or they, they constantly are maybe drug addiction uh, and the utilization of drugs like my former self. These are ways to mask this absence of deeper meaning because they're not mm -hmm. on a journey. They're not on the trip, as, you, as we talked about earlier. That trip is one that takes a lot of effort, but it's so much more meaningful and that's really the providence of it. it. It's the, as I go on my journey, I find more meaning in my life. I find my connection with God growing deeper because I can see him working in my life and the fear of me turning my back on him, which we constantly do through our own sins, scares me more and more because I don't want that to be the case. I don't, I don't want to be separated from him. But which is a, a type of old world understanding to please the father is to become fully the son. Like yeah. it is, but you know, we've been taught through this sort of the, uh, you could call it a theology, but the ideology of revolution since the French revolution yeah. to yeah. take, to take the takeaway is to become brand new every time you become something. In other words, right. your child is not supposed to become like you. And I think, I think that time is running out. Don't you? I don't yeah. think we can hold a society together where you're not supposed to, on some level, become like your parents. I don't right. think it. I don't think it can play out into into history. Right. I, I I don't think it's coherent that that concept. So then, okay. So here's a question for you: Does everyone then rush back to various forms of traditional living? Do you think that? Western people will rush back, not because, I don't know, you and I had a great podcast, but because their soul or their spirit is crying out to hold on to something that's transcendent. Do you think that's happening? I, I do. Uh, I mean, just in regards to the, the popularity of orthodoxy, which, I mean, we as Orthodox Christians are less than 1% of the U.S. population. So that that's pretty small and insignificant. Kind of and yet when you look at the really breakdowns small. of demographics of, of religious groups and denominations, Orthodox Christianity, this is including Islam and Judaism and Hinduism, all the religions, uh, religious spectrum of the United States, Orthodox Christianity was like second on the lowest average age of, mm. of, of a parishioner. And so that means young people are coming in at a rate that Catholicism, all the other Protestant denominations, but even the other religions, people, immigrants that are coming in are moving away from their traditional faith, yet orthodoxy is getting a lot of young people. And, and so why would that phenomenon exist? Well, I would say it's because it, in, in America specifically, it's a lot of young men which is the exact opposite. Eastern Europe is a lot of young women, and the men aren't in the church. <laughs> so it's, it's a bit of a, a reversed role. But I would say in the West, it's young men that are looking for purpose. And unfortunately, much of the Western world, all it offers you is consumerism and this idea that you can like remake yourself, that like you said, this sort of new beginning, not mm -hmm. being like your parents, not being part of tradition. And that the novelty is going to be tied with your identity. 
Well, people want something that's actually rooted in history, rooted in time, that's been tested, and they and, find orthodoxy. And, they find a patriarch. And what about – I've talked about this before on podcasts. And what about the idea that – take a little pressure off me, man. I'm 11, and you keep asking me what do I want to become, what do I want to do with my life. Right. I'm 11. See, I have a name. It's the same name as my father. Here's – I was here's. He was here's. I am somebody already. And I'm 11. Can I just be here's the younger for a day? But no, everybody's talking at me all day long about what do you want to be? And I'm like, what do you mean? I am someone right now. Right. And what I, what I the reason I bring this up more than once or two, twice in a, in, a, in a podcast life is my African friends are poor, but they don't lack for identity. They're, they're like, what do you think I am? I'm the son, I'm the grandson of Bakri and the son of Madu, like... Right. What's the problem? And I'm like, I know, but what do you? I know, but really, what are? What are you gonna do? <laughs> yeah. Like, no, but really, uh, that's what I'm doing with my life. It's freaky, but I really, I think there's a lot of pressure on 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 what I would call new world teenagers, and I think yeah. there's a lot of middle fingers because of that pressure. I think there's yeah. like, f you, I'll do what I want to do, and and I'm gonna tear this thing down a little bit before I have to build it up. Yeah, I absolutely think that's the case. And it gets back to even that Protestant work ethic because we say, well, what are you going to be? Who are you going to be? And it's always tied to your career. How are you going to make money? And it's not about tied to the type of person you're going to be. Because I'd rather, and that's what I, I hope, God willing, I have sons, that I educate them on what it means to be a great man. If they choose to be a carpenter, a lawyer, a doctor, it doesn't matter. They're a great man, and they'll be successful whatever they do. I'm not concerned about the career, the way they're going to serve the world. I'm concerned of how they're going to be as a person, because if you are a good man, you can do whatever your heart's called to do, and you can get on your journey. You can be on wow. the trip again, as we were talking about. Yeah. But you can't be on the trip if you're not a good person, and, oh, yeah, I'm a doctor, and I make you know six figures. Right? Well, that, that's insignificant. That's not the point. It actually is, if you can say it out loud and really believe it, it's insignificant that you make a million and I make a hundred. It's actually insignificant. Now, someone's going to just say, I know, there's going to be a comment. What are you talking about? The million dollar person can make way more inroads. They can make a lot of change in a world. If the million dollar person thinks like you, then they can do more than the hundred dollar person. But doing more is not synonymous with virtue. Right. This is what I, I don't think we understand, right, sometimes in the way. Doing more is irrelevant when it comes to the acquisition of virtue. Right. You know, if you're good, it's good enough. You don't have to be good times seven. <laughs> the, 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 the notion of scale, that's probably the number one takeaway from these years of working with First Things is, man, man, the Westerners, Americans like to scale. It's freaky. Yeah. I think it's the it's part of the American mindset. And certainly there's there's good facets of it. I would say the the questioning of authority. Um, there's aspects of that that I think are, are good, uh, when, especially when you, I, I was just in Europe and that was a stark cr contrast with the German culture, which they uh, are much more complicit with whatever the government tells them to do. Uh, yeah. Uh, and so I was like, uh, I noticed that was a stark cultural difference. But because of the American mindset of expansion, 
I mean, our country was founded by constantly expanding, expanding until we hit the Pacific Ocean. Now, where do we expand? Now it's business. Now, you know, Silicon Valley, yeah. the, the expansion is the tech sphere. America is constantly expanding, expanding. And we have this rooted within our mind of, of, like you said, the exponential growth of things, how we can scale things. Scale, scale, scale. And it's not, it, and it's not, and unfortunately, this is why we're not tr- as traditional. Now, I'm, obviously, there's great Americans, and I love being American. I'm very proud of it. Me but, too. But um, in regards to, like, you go to an Eastern European country or Africa, I'm part of this family generation. I'm part of this tradition. This is this is what we do. This is how we view the world. And America, it's like you go make yourself, but we don't yeah. ever really make ourselves, and that's an illusion in and of itself. That is this is the insight, guys. Again, this is the new world, old world thing. You never really become something other than you already were. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. This is what I mean. I'm, I was already my mother because I keep seeing her skin in all the skin that I have. It's freaky. Like it, we have the same kind of skin. And what I'm trying to say is, is I'm not going to ever unmake that. And right, so right. the degree to which I'm, I, I have my own identity is the degree to which I what? I become what she wasn't in her lifetime, which is better. To become better spiritually, to become better as a spiritual being within the world. I already have all the physical reality. She already passed this to me. I don't have to do more than she did physically. I have what I have. But spiritually, I'm supposed to take up this mantle, right, and continue in the vein of what she gave me spiritually. I can grow spiritually. Physically, I don't don't think we make a better world. Like, I don't think we make better buildings. I know people are going to just think I'm crazy, but we make buildings that are different, and those come down differently than the other buildings we made. But I don't think we like the utopia of a material reality made better through stronger minds. I get nervous about all this. The yeah. utopia well, I, I, I think you look at the architecture. Look at, look at American architecture now, and it's so utilitarian that we don't create buildings based on aesthetics. You know, yeah, maybe the Art Deco aesthetic or you go to Europe and you see some of the Gothic cathedrals. It's not they didn't build that due to utilitarian reasons or how they could scale something or how they can get the most people inside of a particular space. It's about beauty. It was it was a spiritual understanding about how it enlivens your own soul. We don't do that in in America anymore. I mean, there was a period where we began to, but that's totally been squashed, I would say, since the mid 20th century, especially in the 21st century. Everything is just so it's square. It's industrial. It's it's all about utility, how you can make money. It's it's a deadening of the soul. Same with it's communism. Deadening. You look at Soviet structure buildings, it's the same thing. How many apartments can you fit into a rectangle? That's the goal. My my mother, God rest her soul, uh, uh, her memory eternal, she, these weren't the exact words, Patrick, but she would basically say, you know, you can be more beautiful than your father and your mother were. But she didn't become, they didn't, she didn't use the word successful. That really wasn't, she was like, you can become more beautiful. So my dad was acting funny or whatever. He, you know, he was clumping around the house and taking out the garbage and huffing and puffing and wishing that I had done it. And he beat me to it. And then, you know, my mom would say, just, yeah, yeah, he lost his temper, but you, you, you can be more beautiful. So I think many people hear that as a disrespect to my father, but my father didn't know it that way. He knew it as, yeah, go 
Go take what you've been given and go be more beautiful spiritually. Right. That's pretty cool because I think I think we understand that we should grow. The question is in what fashion, right. on what plane, on what level. And and I want to stay in good health, but the point is is I'm going to die, but right. my spirit may not. <laughs> <laughs> now, if our yeah. spirit's just going to die, Patrick, like my friend Uncle Seth says, if this is the end, we sound like idiots. Right. Well, How do you I square don't... that? How do you square yeah. that? You just don't believe it, basically. I, I don't believe it. Doesn't make, it, it doesn't make logical sense to me. Uh, then that's when I get into the apologetics and hmm. the arguments for God – I, I would I would feel and I would argue that they're so strong that there has to be a creator. And if there is a creator and there is then objective truth, there must then be objective morality. Then it makes sense that there's going to be an objective standard of judgment. And then if that's the case, only an incarnated God would know how to judge accordingly to a pure heart. And so it makes sense then why Jesus Christ would be that standard. Then it's like the argument is which form of Christianity is it? Um yeah, and then you, you get the orthodoxy. That was that was nice and tight. You went right down, and now we're into the question of what is the church, basically. Yeah, and and how do we continue on? And this is what I believe. Me as Orthodox, my my family, my parents. I grew up very conservative Methodist, and I have a history on my dad's side of Methodist ministers. A couple of which went and got PhDs in religion and talked about theology and religious studies. And and this was. I wasn't totally aware of all that stuff before I started pursuing my own academic stuff and religious studies. And so it's weird how then I found myself in a way continuing a path that my dad didn't travel down that. He was interested in helicopters and cars and he ran an airport. And so he didn't continue the sort of religious dimension that many of the men of his side of the family were a part of. But then I found myself doing that and I was totally unconscious that that was a part of the family tradition. But then I see myself now becoming an Orthodox Christian and it sort of correcting my historical lineage that, yeah. you know, my great grandfather couldn't have become Orthodox because how would he know about it? I mean, it only, it really isn't until the, the contemporary internet age where Orthodoxy has been spread around the world because as everything came Western, Orthodoxy went Eastern and it wasn't mm -hmm. until it hit Alaska and then it came down the West coast and then it started spreading across the United States. But in regards to all the other world religions, it was one of the last religions to really get a hold. Yeah, I'm familiar of, you know, St. Herman, but really as a how, oh, let me learn about this, translating all these works into English, you really didn't have access into the Orthodox world until the 20th century. And now with the 21st century, I think that's why the ortho explosion, the orthosphere is so popular. How can less than 1% of American population be Orthodox? And yet, in regards to online Christian apologetics, orthodoxy has to be, yeah. it's, it's one of the strongest. Mm -hmm. And so how does that occur? Fact, I, I, have you seen in, in Protestant publications, they use orthodox, small o, all the time. And, and whenever I see these publications talking about, you know, Protestant, the future of Protestant churches, the future of, you know, um, Baptists in, in the South or whatever I'm seeing, the small O Orthodox is sort of assumed to be understood by everyone. But in the article itself, it's super unclear what it even means. Mm -hmm. But they use it. They use it yeah. often. It pops up all the time. It's very fascinating.
Yeah. Here's a question. I w- go down this road with me for a second. But you know we're going to do the the lighter meter test, which is a you know, it's a scientific thing that we do here on this channel where we give our guests a test. Okay. I didn't even warn you about it. But don't it's worry, right. it's not going to you will not become toxic male because of this. It's going to expose me as a fraud. It's no, I, it, you can't be a more fraud than I am. I'm, ch- I'm telling you, I take this test and I'm totally exposed, but I'm going to give it to you. But before we do, so you have an expertise, an intellectual um, expertise in this idea of transhumanism. Mm-hmm. I think you should help us understand something while at the same time, we're becoming aware of a deeper theological tradition, maybe called orthodoxy. We're becoming more aware of our brothers and sisters around the world who who practice something called faith in the mm-hmm. in, in Christ. But also, we're learning about Hinduism as we learn as the as the internet does all this stuff for us. It also does this other thing, mm-hmm. which it, it tends to cull us and pull us together in some weird androgynous ways where we're neither that nor this, and we're all this one thing. And I think that's transhumanism. Um, writ large. I know it's way more complicated, but I think that's something like what's happening to us. Tell us what you think, how this, how should we use the internet? How should we know it? And what's its role in transhumanist philosophy and theory? Right. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. There's a lot to unpack there. Um, in regards to, and I always mention this because I know I've talked with Orthodox people at the fears in regards to advanced artificial intelligence, the utilization of these technologies, people say, well, just give it up. Just, you know, it's time, it's time to hit, get back to the mountain, uh, right. just live a sustainable life. We got to get off the grid because this stuff's coming to enslave us. And orthodoxy doesn't understand uh, that a technology could be evil because it doesn't have a will. The only thing that could be evil is something that willfully goes against that of God. Therefore, angels, demons, and humans are the only thing that could technically be evil. Mm. And so technology is a tool, a tool that is increasingly become more and more dangerous. Uh, But it has to do with the will of the people that can utilize these tools and what they can do with them. So I don't see... And that's where God can use all negatives for good. So, yeah, did DARPA invent the Internet in the 60s and make it public as a way to, you know, have more access to the spread of information and change societies? Yeah, probably. Absolutely. But also, orthodoxy has been able to grow. We've been able to share the message of Christ. Right. We've been able to educate people about the church. So does that make the Internet evil? Well, certainly there can be people that were evil and had evil intentions with it, but doesn't make the tool itself evil. And this is where we get into questions of should orthodox people use artificial intelligence? Well, I don't think AI is evil. I have speculated, and I've even talked about this with with your brother, uh, Father Peter here, is about I suspect that the evil one, as we move closer to the Antichrist in the end times, is going to utilize these technologies, creating a global community, and it will be able to inhabit the technology. So there may be a will inside the AI eventually, because it's the inversion of the incarnation of Christ. He's not, in, he's not you know, Satan is not becoming a man in the same in hypothesization that Christ was fully God, fully man. He's going to be half man, half machine. He's going to be a, mm-hmm. a, a bastard making of both of them. And... Wow. 
transhumanism is an ideology that is built on a, a few different pillars. One's called posthumanism. Posthumanism believes that we are moving beyond the category of a, just a pure biological human. And this is talked about by the World Economic Forum. Uh, Yuval Noah Harari has a book called Homo Deus in which he's talking about how by 2050 they, they believe, these transhumanists believe that there will be no purely biological homo sapien on the planet anymore because they'll all be augmented through chips, through vaccines, through various technologies that they're going to be upgraded, as they call it. And so this is creating then a, a new category. It's called post-humanity. It's post-humanism. It's no more about humanism. It's about becoming something new. Another part of it is their post what's called post-secularism, which is the idea that the difference between religion and the secular world, the absence of religion, is breaking down, and that is going to then be uh, secular movements are going to utilize religious language to create meaning. And I would say yeah. that's exactly what transhumanism is doing. It's using, yeah. oh, yeah, we're talking about science and technology and gene editing, but then at the same point they're saying, oh, we're going to liberate ourselves from biology. We're going to be able to live as long as you want. You'll be able to you know, have the entire Internet database as your brain. Well, yeah, that may sound nice, but we're, really what, I would, what I'm arguing in my work is that's just another form of post-secular religious discourse. That's creating religious meaning and transcendent meaning because the transcendence for these transhumanists is the transcending of what they perceive as biological limitations. Um, Wow. And then there's another philosophy called dataism that is, is central to this transhumanism that has that believes that all life is is an algorithm. It's the processing of information. And so whether you're a squirrel, a human, or an AI system, the only thing that's interesting is how much information you can process. And therefore, humanity, because of their evolutionary understanding of how man came about the category or the essence or nature or substance of what man is or human nature is really just a faulty category in itself and that there is no such thing as human nature because what we call the human is constantly changing from, you know, bacteria to ape to, to man to homo sapien. Now, I reject macroevolution, but that's their belief system. And therefore, there is no, there is no concept of, oh, or you're made in the, the Imago Dei, you're made in the image of God, or there is a... There's a there there, as they would say philosophically. There's no there there to humanity. It's just a biological entity that can process the most data as an animal, and it's constantly changing. And therefore, they say, well, if you are half mach machine, half man, well, then you're probably going to be able to process more information. Therefore, you're going to be better. And because that's like a Gnostic. Go ahead. Yeah, well, no, but I love this, man. I'd let you just keep ripping. But, and that's – so – where the point is to process data, data processing becomes the good. Take yep. out an O and data processing becomes something like the God. It becomes the yep. point, right? And exactly. Then, so here's my question. And this one, maybe you can't even answer, but man, I want you to keep going. And then we're going to do the test. I've noticed in our world of recruiting people to go do this very, very, very non-data processing job called First Things, that so many data processors are, are applying. It's fascinating. Mm. That they are what you and I might call, I'm not doing this. Whoever's going to yell at me, 
I just think of it as an aut- autism. Now, don't get me wrong. I know autism has scientific contours. Like, I know it's a thing, and it's not yeah. another thing. But I would just say that that spectrum that everybody jokes about, the reason that everybody jokes about it is because it's in the water, man. And I don't think it's just because somebody got gave it got a got a vaccine when they were little. I really don't. I actually think you're seeing the outcome and the power of culture yep. that the people we call autistic, it's not a brain thing. It's a adapt an ad- adaptation and an adoption of a way of being because yep. it's rewarded. Because to data process is to be rewarded in our culture. What do you think about that? Yeah. Well, I think there's a lot of factors contributing to the actual existence of autism. I think there's a lot of factors, and I agree with you. Our culture is gearing people towards a automaton-type existence. You know, like you're talking about, first things foundation is about human interaction. Orthodoxy is about human interaction. That's the entire point of your judgment. When you, when you face God... It's not about, you know, how many algorithms did you code right? It's how did you treat people? How did in your heart, in the, di- in the depth of your heart, how did you really feel about your neighbor? How do you really feel about your wife and children? That's, what, that's why Christ having a perfect heart, your heart's going to be judged against his perfect heart. That's mm-hmm. what's interesting. So that's why in Orthodox, you can't be saved alone. There's no such thing as salvation in a vacuum, because how could you work your salvation out? There'd be nobody there to make you frustrated. There'd be nobody there to be compassionate towards. There'd be nobody there to love who, who may choose not to love you back. Um, but that's the point. That's why even God created us. So these higher faculties, as Orthodox, you talk about these uncreated energies, that's the whole point of our theology and our spiritual life. And this data processing is just about you becoming a really the data itself. Uh, because where this all this is going is all these biometric uh, markers is you are the data that the system ultimately wants. It wants to know your heart rate, all your health records, uh, what your internet searches are, what you think about. That's the data that this control system is really, really focused on because, yeah, you're a data, data processing based on this philosophy, but also you are the most important data that the AI systems, the globalist control systems, really want to focus on. And it's totally dehumanizing. And that's what, what the evil data? one's constantly trying to do. What is data? Like, it's, d- d- any piece of information. It's information. So the, yeah. So the idea of data. On some level, right? It's logos in the sense that it's, it comes through a, 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 a word here, meaning it comes through a language, mm-hmm. whether it's written, unspoken, spoken. It's, it's like the effluvium. It it moves around, right? It's a. Th- is it a thing in the sense that data it it can be acquired? Can it be known, or is it, you know, like by known? Can it? Can we relate to it? These yeah, are really hard questions. Yeah, yeah, I know I mean, because it's an abstraction. But I think that's why dataism as a philosophy appeals so much to this sort of mentality that's resistant to a submission to God because it says all all it is is a sort of a Gnostic pursuit for information. And that's what they see the advanced artificial intelligence doing is that they can then allocate the acquiring of information to these AI systems and they're going to be more intelligent than than humans. But 
that's not, you know, again, that's a limiting of what intelligence is and what it, what a human is. It totally disregards all this other stuff because ultimately these, again, these worldviews, I would argue, are satanic. They're totally dehumanizing. I believe that's the role of the evil one. When we look at our culture, generally speaking, it's constantly trying to dehumanize us because that's taking out the Imago Dei, the image of God within us. And that's the whole role of theosis is to become like God by grace, by becoming more human. You know, it's my priest, uh, shout out to Father Athanasius, he's 91, he's my priest, and he always talks about how when Christ uh, gave up his human spirit on the cross, he says, now it is complete, meaning the being made in the image of God is fully complete, that those who exist after Christ's resurrection have an opportunity that Adam and Eve didn't have because God had not incarnated and become fully God, fully man. So now the goal is to nurture and grow the image of God within us. And we look at the world and everything it's trying to do, whether it be the work ethic of our careers, making that our sole identification marker, um, thinking that we're just uh, algorithms to process information, getting us to just identify ourselves based on our sexual orientation or our sexual fetishes, uh, limiting people to their racial groups. This is all part of a dehumanizing process to, to get us to give up our own image of God, which is what the evil one has to do because he can't violate our free will. We have to choose it. Would you... Okay, man. Beautiful. Would you argue that that process of humanizing... So you, you describe nicely dehumanizing... The process of humanizing, become fully human. This can happen. I want people to hear this, but you speak to it. This can happen inside and outside the church. Mm-hmm. There's people right now in Greer, South Carolina, who are doing this. But how? what would you say to non-Orthodox in the sense that it can be done, and it's been done by all people all throughout history? What would you say to people about this ecumenist nature? Like... If everybody can do it, to what degree can they all do it equally? And why does orthodoxy hold something special? Mm. Yeah. Um, Certainly, as Paul talks about, the law is written on everybody's heart. And that's what I love about orthodoxy and its understanding of judgment, um, is that we don't make explicit claims about anybody's salvation. So unlike the Catholic Church, although now the Catholic Church is totally unrecognizable to the historical Catholic Church, historically they would say, if you don't submit to the papacy, then you're not going to be saved. For Protestants, it's their proclamation of faith, their sola fide. But in Orthodoxy, we would say we are the truth. We are the church founded by the apostles in Christ. Um, we are led by the Holy Spirit, but everybody is going to be judged according to their own metric, their own standards, the, where they come from, their own context. As we began this conversation about contextualization, mm-hmm. well, orthodox judgment and salvation is totally based on the idea that God only knows the full context of you growing up with alcoholic parents that beat you or you're abused by the age of four. Only God knows that and then can deal with how your heart moves through space and time into adulthood where you have free will to then make decisions. That's your, you're working out your salvation in that period. And so, yeah, the guy who does Tai Chi on Wudong Mountain in China who's never heard about Christ, I don't know his salvation. Um, if he treats people good, if he's uh, a moral person, that's, that's between him and God. But 
ecumenism is this idea where now we're we're totally conflating objective categories. And I mean, we see this right now with the idea that men can become women and women can become men. I argue this is a breakdown, again, of the human faculty of logic and reason. And that's why it's a deliberate attempt at gaslighting so that you give up the idea that you can form your own opinion, that you must then concede to whatever the, the dominant consensus narrative is. Because we know that a man and a woman aren't the same. We know that men have biological advantages to competing in sports against women. But we're told, well, you can't say that. That's, that's transphobic. Well, no, I don't have an irrational fear of trans people. That's what a phobia is. That's a hijacking of language. That's a manipulation through, through symbols. Um, but this ecumenism and the trans, again, transgenders just being one issue, the gaslighting is trying to break down our faculties to understand reality. And if there is an objective truth, then all religions can't be saying the same thing. Buddhism believes in the Anatman. That's the lack of a soul. Hinduism believes in the Atman, meaning there is a soul. Okay, how can you say that that's the same thing when they're clearly making two different statements about the existence of the soul? One religion says there is no God. Another religion says there's a, there's a pantheon of gods. The, another religion says there's one God, Allah. Another one says that no God is a trinity. Mm. Well, those are explicit claims that are contradicting to each other. Whatever the truth is, one has to be closer to it than another. That doesn't mean there can't be truthful things in other religions. That's right, why orthodoxy, right. you know, St. Justin Martyr talked about logos spermaticos. There can be seeds of logos in Christ and, and all the world religions. We don't disagree there, but only orthodoxy is the full expression of it. And therefore, without the orthodox church, you, you can be a good person, but you can't fully understand the mystery of reality which is that God became a man and that our goal is to follow in his footsteps, take up our cross and follow Christ so that we can become gods by grace and we can participate as created entities in something that's uncreated. That's eternity itself. See, now now you're just crazy. Now you're just a crazy <laughs> person because we can become like God. You're just crazy now. Everyone's going like, I, I, he's crazy. But you know what? You're not. Well, let me put it a different way. If there is this God, then that's the only way we can act. Right. We have to move toward becoming like like the creator. But if there's not, okay, then you're crazy. Then we're all crazy. Then we should all get a lot richer and hit someone in the head to do it. I'm happy. If you guys can prove to me there's no God, then I get to hit people in the head, especially if I can control the police force. And they can hit people in the head on my behalf. Right. I'm serious about that. I mean, look, just check out atheist, communist, atheist Russia. See how it went. Yeah. All right. Here's a question. Will you take our test? Sure. This is a lightometer for David Patrick Herring, guys. So if you're All tuning right. in, you want, to, you want to see what DPH is saying. Here's how we're going to end today. Otherwise, we'll just go on and on, man. We'll just do it. We'll do it again. I'll come over to your channel. I, I would yeah, like that. Dude, we'll have to talk about. We'll we'll make it we'll make the the topic first things first. And so we'll talk about your journey into like first it. thing foundation and then life as a man, as an Orthodox Christian, and what are the first things? Okay. We have our podcast. We're ready to roll. <laughs> okay, good. You made my day. I'm not kidding. I think about these things. All right. All right, good. Let's leave with finding out. Now I just I just want to remind you, I know it's hard to believe, but what I'm gonna offer you right now is 
is scientific. We're following the science. This this test I'm going to give you, Patrick, was hewn from the ancient rocks of truth itself. <laughs> and we tested this. We tested these rocks. We tested this very test against all the wonderment of science. In other words, this is from MIT, what I'm about okay. to offer you. Okay. All right. I believe what's his name? What's his name? The uh, physicist who's everywhere and always ripping on things. Orthodox. Um, what's his name? Anyway, he himself, the scientific community, has in fact argued for the lightometer as an actual source of truth. And you're okay. about to enter the wow. lightometer. Are you ready? Oh, truth is a who, but I guess it's a, it's no, a no, I know that's what we Orthodox talk about. Just, I'm going to have to, you're You're, I'm revealing my true self today. Okay. This test is the who are you ready? Yep. <laughs> Just joking. Okay. When I die, I want you to answer this question. Here's how you answer it. Zero means you strongly disagree with what I'm about to ask you. Okay. One means you disagree. Two means you agree. Three means you strongly agree. Three okay. is hell yes. Zero is hell no. And then one and two fall between. Okay. You ready? Yep. I've got it written down here for you too because it's very scientific. It's, you know, <laughs> we, we can't get this wrong. Uh, when you die, Mr. DPH, you won't really die all the way. It's more like... You'll be asleep waiting for a next world of some sort. Zero mm. strongly disagree. One disagree. Two agree. Three strongly agree. Um, well, based on the ambiguity of the question, I don't know exactly uh, how they understand the resting period. I would say I would give it a two because of the ambiguity, but certainly as an Orthodox Christian, I believe that we do sort of fall asleep in the Lord until our judgment day and, and God willing, be able to enter into the kingdom. So uh, I, I would say a two, potentially a three, um, if I knew the frame three. of the question. You're such, a, you're such an academic. Just <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to give you a 2.5 because you began okay. to judge the test itself, which... <laughs> means you I'm telling you, you will pay and you will suffer for that. I'm sure. The truth. Here's the second question. Again, hewn, hewn out of the rocks of truth. Uh two, the best way for me to know myself, or the best way for you to know yourself, is to ask someone else about yourself. Mm. Zero strongly disagree with that. Three is strongly mm. agree. I would give that a I would give that a 2 as well. 2 uh, a 2 because I'm more interested in actions over words and I think if we judge ourselves we'll use a lot of ideas where if somebody else judges us um it's going to be based on how we made them feel in actions that we took. Um it may not correspond with how I view myself but it's probably more accurate to who I really am. Nice. Did you guys hear that? That was a two in the second question. 
Number three, the third question of five. Uh, when you, Patrick, carry a picture of someone around, of someone you love, say in your purse or your, your wallet, maybe you don't have it. I try to leave my purse at home. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when you carry a picture around of someone that you love, you're actually carrying that person around with you. Like they're there, actually close mm. to you in some kind of way. Yeah. Please uh, no comment about the ambiguity of the question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I would agree with that. So I would give that um, in regards to the their presence, I wouldn't say they're fully there there. Uh, so I'd give that another two. I would agree that it they are there. Absolutely. And that and that ties into my belief in iconography and, and kissing icons and venerating icons and why I even kiss photos. Uh, you know, if I was at war, I'm sure that I would kiss photos of my loved ones in the same way. Guys, he kisses photos. Um, <laughs> seems okay to me. I kiss photos. All right. Here's number four. We're just testing to see whether you're old world or new world. This is, I'm again, we're just doing a little scientific test. It's, it doesn't speak to anything except for, your actual future as a human being on this earth. Okay, right. number four. Here, here it is. Whether I'll be brought into the utopia or not. Exactly. You are trying to earn your way in right now. You're doing okay. We'll see. Uh, number four. Respect isn't earned. Respect is owed by you, Patrick, to others. Mm. Boy, that... <laughs> When the phrase "it's not earned" uh, rubs me the wrong way, at the same time, I give, I try to give everybody respect to begin with, but then the maintaining of that respect wanes or gains based on uh, the actions of somebody. So I think I'm gonna have to give that one a one because I lean more towards respect is earned, although I do give respect to everybody. So everybody's given a default uh, level of respect, but. Uh, I see. But so I do think old. that respect is something that is earned, uh, and, and that's how friendships and love and all that stuff is acquired, I, I, I would argue, at least the way that I view it in my, my life. One is your answer on the fourth question. If you can listen, you can, you can hear the algorithm, you can feel the machine is ready to spit out an answer as to what this means for your future as a new world wow. and an old world person. You're close. We're almost there. This is question five. Here we go. I feel like this is. Uh, uh, go ahead. Well, I go was ahead. gonna say like the what is it? The end game. Uh, the 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 dystopian future where you live in like the different districts and. Uh, yeah. This is that. This is yeah. that. I'm gonna you're, I'm gonna be in one of the poor districts. I can feel it. Yeah, you're gonna. It's your test. We don't know yet. We have to let the machine properly Hunger Games. Analyze. That's what it is. Hunger Games. Hunger Games, yes. That's number I'm five. I'm going to be hungry. Yeah, number five. It's going to be great because after this question and we get your number, everything about everything you do from this moment on will be determined by this last question and your total answer. I'm excited about it. Here we All go. Right. Number five. I hope and expect to take my parents in and have them live with me when they get old and affirm, or depending on our guest, you hope and expect to live near your kids, even preferably in their home when you get old and infirm. 
uh, infirmed. This so the first part the was taking you. care of my parents, right? And vice versa, because maybe no. maybe your parents have already died. And vice so, versa, as you get older, you hope you you plan to live with your kids. Um, I hadn't thought about the living with my kids, but I'm gonna have to give it a three. Uh, because I have already told my mom, who I told you guys have a, she has a rare form of muscular dystrophy, that uh, I am not going to let her die in a nursing home. And so uh, my wow. goal is to uh, build a second house on the property next to my parents that's going to be wheelchair accessible, and me and my wife will live there. And when my mom can't walk, um, I'm going to take care of her until she dies, and I, I made that promise to her. And so, to me, that's just part of my providence and the way that my unfolding of my life went. And I want to step up to that responsibility. And I, my grandmother, she died in a nursing home, and I saw the t deterioration of her dementia. You know, things just got worse once she got in there. And yeah. uh, I want my mom and my parents, both my parents are older, they're 72 and 73, uh, that uh, I'm going to take care of them. So I'm going to have to give that a three because I already made that promise to my mom. There it is. So you've answered all five questions. It's not a right or wrong question. I'm now going to reveal your score, and okay. I'm going to reveal the actual, the actual criteria for your future existence in this world as a new world or old world person. In other words, uh -huh. are you old world or new world in the way you operate? Here is your total 10.5. Uh, for scientific sake, we round that up to 11. And here is what you are not. You are not a zero, also known as the Francis Bacon Award. You're, you're not hateful of old world thinking. As it says here in the scientific literature, old world thinking has the same appeal to you as placing leeches on an open sore. <laughs> you, are so, you are so light if you had scored zero that you enjoy concocting new ways to study the effects that scientific studies have on science students. You are not that. You are not that. You are not the high nooner. That would have meant you scored one to three. And that's where the bright light of the new world hovers over you wherever you go. Mm. You are not the shining city <laughs> dweller on the hill. You are not, Patrick. You are not a person that has hope for the modern world because you trust science and Reddit. Yeah, that, that is true. People, I do not have hope that, in the modern that world. That is not you. That is not you. It's not you. If people would do what science told them, to do, then society would be better off. That's not you. That's not you. You are also not a suburbanite in our new scoring system, 7 to 10. Suburbanite means you feel romantic about the old world. You like the security of hierarchy, but hierarchy is mostly a word you'd rather read about in a book. Mm. That's not you. Although that was nearly you. Nearly. A suburbanite also feels like they want to obey their elders more than they actually do. That's not mm. you. Scientifically, you are a villager. That's somebody who scores 12, uh, 11 to 14. Mm. So what are you? Patrick, I'm going to deliver the truth about who you are because you took the test. There's a good chance that you hate malls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Places... 
places like Algeria, Ethiopia, they roll out the red carpet for you. Your Spotify collection includes weird chants that are hard to pronounce from some province where you wish you were at any moment. And hierarchy, well, that's a good thing, even though you're not always acting very hierarchically. Mm. That is scientifically who you are. You are not Charlemagne, which is a perfect 15. No one's ever scored a perfect 15 except for my, well, my sister came very close. And that just means we're going to change the Charlemagne because he's Western. It's more like the Constantine. That just oh, means you you're full, full retro. So full retro. there you go, man. Full wow, retro. So you are not. I'm a common villager. Yeah. I'm a, com- you're a, villager. a common villager. I, I, yeah. I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. So only one person's got 15. That's, that's what, a three on every question? That's a three on every question. Wow. What'd you score? I actually scored Suburbanite. I scored a nine when I took this thing. Okay. I mean, I got a baseball hat on. I'm, I'm a loser, man. This is how it works. <laughs> I, 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 I don't know. Like, I did get recently, I got rid of Netflix, but, like, I felt it a little bit. Like, I kind of <laughs> like Netflix. You know <laughs> yeah. I, mean? <laughs> I feel you there. Yeah. So, I'm lower. But my, my, my buddies on the, on the West Coast, Uncle Seth, I think Uncle Seth scored, like, an eight. He's he's my atheist friend. Uh, my buddy out in the West Coast, he's a screenwriter. He scored like a three. Uh, I think it's scientifically accurate. And what did your brother have, score? He took it. He scored uh, Villager. Okay. Yep. He scored right in your range. Yeah. I think he's um, on the other side of the mountain in the other village. <laughs> <laughs> True. He's like, he's got his own he's got his own power supply up on the top of a mountain somewhere. I agree. <laughs> so let's just end with that silliness. Although I do think when I come on your show, there is actually reality in that. And you 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 already picked it all out. You saw the iconography in it. You saw the communitarianism in it. You saw mm-hmm. the taking care of your parents. So we do that. It's good to have you. What do you I want to tell you having me on? Hang up? What do you want to tell folks? They should go to your website. We'll link all that. Yeah. Um, if if anybody wants to find out more, they can go to my YouTube channels, David Patrick Harry or Church of the Eternal Logos. Um, and if you'd like to learn more, even more, you can go to my website, davidpatrickharry.com or churchoftheeternallogos.com. Takes you to the same place. And uh, and find out more. Uh, feel free to email me at churchoftheeternallogos at gmail.com, and I'd be happy to answer any questions or correspond with anybody who has something they'd like to share. I, I didn't get into it. One of the questions we can do in the future, too, when you come back, is you have a very unique and a very um, insightful understanding of education, what it might look like going forward. Uh, mm-hmm. You're an educator, your talk at Montanica was, was special and you are especially good when it comes to trying to articulate what I would call new world people who want to try to investigate these ancient traditions and understand this threshold between enlightenment pre and post. Mm. I've been very um, impressed with your work on that and thankful for it. So keep going, man. Well, well thank going. you. And I, I truly appreciate that. And I appreciate your friendship and the ability to meet you in Montanica. Um, And yeah, so thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. We'll talk again soon. And um, thanks, man. And guys, check us out, www.first-things.org. 
We're around. We got the restaurant. We got what we're doing. I'm rooting for the Orioles in this world, in this playoffs of ours, my childhood team. Much love. I'll see you guys later next time on Watar. All right, everybody, that was David Patrick Carey, Church of the Eternal Logos. Definitely go check him out. You can find the links. They will lead you into a, a myriad of discussions about, well, this whole idea of the threshold, the whole idea of what was becoming something new, the idea of conversion, the idea of philosophy, and how it's important for young men especially, and also... I think, best of all, he translates big ideas into, I guess, edible ideas that all of us need in this very crazy world we live in. That was David Patrick Harry. Thank you. For more on us, go to firstthings.org, www.first-things.org. Google us, check out our restaurant, and most of all, come back and support us. Become a recurring donor. We love you. Thank you. Peace out. All right, guys, there you go. Cut that in. Who loves you? Riverside Rocks. Riverside Studio Rocks.